0: Welcome to Chat NDT with AST, a podcast from the American Society for Non-Destructive Testing. I'm Debbie Segor, the host of the podcast. Our podcast today is being sponsored by Waygate Technologies. Todd Selmer has worked for the Nuclear Waste Partnership, LLC, for 24 years and is currently the Manager of Packaging, Engineering, and Information Systems. Before serving as Engineering Group Manager, he was the cognizant engineer for both the contact-handled and remote-handled Nuclear Regulatory Commission licensed nuclear transport Type B packages operated by the Nuclear Waste Partnership. In this capacity, his group is responsible for designing, testing, NRC licensing, operations, and maintenance of the Type B packaging fleet for the Nuclear Waste Partnership. Todd is also an AST, NDT Level 3 in LT, MT, and PT, and previously held NAS 410 Level 3 certification in RT, UT, MT, and PT. He was elected to the AST Class of Fellows in 2015 and is a past chair of the AST Technical and Education Council Committee for Leak Testing. Currently, Todd serves as chair of the ANSI N14.5 Subcommittee and is also the U.S. Delegate for the ISO Technical Advisory Group TC 135 Subcommittee 6 on Leak Testing. As well as the U.S. delegate for ISO Working Group 85, Todd is an ANSI N14 accredited standards committee voting member. Welcome, Todd Selmer, to the Chat NDT with ASNT podcast. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining me on Chat NDT with ASNT. How did you first get into NDT?
1: Actually, I got into non-destructive testing after I got out of college. I went to work in Houston, Texas uh, for a company that actually made oscilloscopes. One of their product lines were the oscilloscopes. And for those of you who understand ultrasonics, you know, I'm dating myself at that point. Um, But the oscilloscopes at the time was what was used for ultrasonic testing. And I went to work in their repair shop, uh, repairing the electronic equipment that NDT customers would bring in. Um, one of our customers was a company at the time; they were a very large company called uh, AMF tupascope and uh, they would bring their equipment in. I would repair it, and they finally asked me, "Hey, it sure would be a lot handier if you would." Get You know, if we had somebody like you out in the field, so I wouldn't have to bring this stuff into Houston all the time. Their area supervisor would always bring it in. Yeah, I didn't much care for the current job I had at the time. (laughs) So uh, I probably hadn't even been there 90 days. And uh, I knew they did non-destructive testing. We got just a little taste of it in college. It was, you know, in mechanical engineering. They said, oh, there's this stuff called NDT, and you should go read more about it thank you. Have a nice day. Well, it kind of intrigued me because um, I'm, I'm a fan of physics. I love it because it never changes. So I told him, yeah, I would take the job, but I wanted to learn about NDT. So I spent my first six months going to NDT training schools, uh, RTMT, PT, UT, and Eddie Current, And then I went to work for them a while. It was, it was really nice. Um, I, I it was my start of NDT and I've just, I fell in love with it ever since.
0: Did you have a mentor at that first job?
1: You know, I did. His name was Jerry Copeland. Um, Jerry was the area supervisor who would bring the, the, the equipment in. And yeah, Jerry was, Jerry was my, my mentor. He, he taught me, I mean, going to NDT training classes, all those schools for six months was great, but it, it's just like, you know, when you graduate from college with a degree, you tell everybody, I- I'm an engineer. Well, you're not. <laughs> You've been taught engineering principles and practices. It takes time and experience to be an engineer. And Jerry taught me the right way to be an inspector. And the most important thing he taught me was do it the right way, do it the right way every time. And that was, I took that to heart and I've listened to it ever since.
0: So our conversation is about ethics in NDT, and you mentioned to me during a conversation that we had previously about something that your father instilled in you. Can you speak about that?
1: You bet. Um, He would tell us, your word is the only thing that no one can take from you. Only you can give it away, but you never get it back always do the right thing. Because, you, you know, you used to call it leaving breadcrumbs, right? <laughs> Don't do things you got to look back over your shoulder to worry about. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, you sleep a lot better at night when you do that. I've just always practiced it my whole life. And it's served me well. And it served you well in the non-destructive testing industry. Oh, absolutely. It's Ethics, doing the right thing, keeping your word. To me, and ethics is is the same thing. Um, You give your word, and 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 you do it no matter what. Um, The company that I work for, I've been with them now 24 years. We have a code of ethics, okay, and there there are six values that they have put on there, and whether people can agree or disagree with what six, but number one is ethics. Always do the right thing. Even when no one's looking, even if it causes you a little bit of discomfort and pain, uh, always do the right thing. And I appreciate that greatly about my company because it's 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 the my foundation and my bedrock. You just always do the right thing. Sometimes it hurts, but it only hurts a little while. Then you'll move on. You'll be fine.
0: Were there situations at your first job out of college that tested that do the right thing
1: oh sure absolutely and so I was working doing non-destructive testing in the oil field right and we were doing eddy current inspection on tubular products right um, and we we're checking because the my, one of my biggest company uh, customers would rent most oil companies rent their equipment they some of the bigger ones own them, but the smaller ones rent their equipment. Their their drill strings, uh, their drill bits, their their downhole pipe, and after it's brought back up from being used, we would do different testing. We'd do magnetic particle testing on the on the the box, the male and female connectors, and we would do eddy current inspection on the tubes and if you found a lot of defects that, that would reject the pipe or whatever the product was, then that customer would have to pay the rental company for it. Well, the rental companies didn't really want you finding a lot of defects depending on who the customer was, right? <laughs> Some customers had deeper pockets than others and could afford that. And there was many times that, that the, the supervisor at the rental yard Would just not like my report, and sorry, (laughs) you're paying me to do this. I've done it. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to say you're going to make the customer pay for it. I'm giving you a report that says here's the condition of your product. You do what you think you have to do. I mean, but yeah, there was a lot of pushback. They just didn't like it at all, and you know that's that's I, I understand that, but you know i My company's paying me to do a job. They've hired my company in good faith, assuming we're going to do the right thing. So I always just figure that's their problem, not mine. I did my job.
0: What advice do you have for a new inspector who is facing that pressure?
1: Um, What I will tell anybody is once you do the wrong thing one time, they expect it again and again, and you will never be fired for doing the right thing. But when somebody founds out, finds out you did the wrong thing, you will be the scapegoat. You will get fired because unless you have it in writing that says, yes, I want you to, to accept this. You know, we're going to change the acceptance criteria or no, don't reject it. No one's going to put that in writing. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So you will be the scapegoat and you will get fired. And once you get fired for that in non-destructive testing, you won't get a job because it is your reputation, your ethics of doing the right thing every time that keeps us employed in non-destructive testing. Nobody wants someone that they can't rely on to do the right thing. And I don't care if it's critical, fracture-critical aerospace components, reactor components, or, or pipe fittings for your faucet. It doesn't matter. You have to do the right thing every time.
0: You mentioned that you don't like the word or phrase interpret results. Can you talk about that?
1: A lot of people like to say, well, that's open for interpretation. Well, it's not. Acceptance criteria are written in a way that you take the interpretation out. It In NDT, there is no gray area. It is black. Or it is white. So it's not open to interpretation. They ha- they have clearly laid out either here's the size of a discontinuity that you can have and still be acceptable. Anything larger than that or more of this is unacceptable. And you have a record. I don't care if it's mag particle, liquid penetrant, ultrasonics, radiography, any current. You have it. It's right there. And you get to look at it and say, no. So there is no open to interpretation. People may, the unknowledgeable people may say it's open to interpretation, but those of us who do this for a living know that it's not open to interpretation. It's written in black and white.
0: How can a small company protect itself with an ethics program?
1: Well, I, I've got to tell you, the small companies, it's actually, in my opinion, it's it's easier in a small company if and this is the important part. If it starts from the top and goes down, and it's no different than, than big companies. But in smaller companies, if you have an ethics program, if, if you have, I mean, like I said, our, our company does. We have an ethics officer. We have all of these things, you know, to, to help ensure that people understand the expectation of doing always doing the right thing. But for a smaller company, that expectation can be just as easily expressed from the owner the president the general manager talking to the employees letting them know what the expectations are and quite frankly nowadays because ethics is such a big topic there's i mean you can just go online and find a hundred ethics programs that are just download them and, and make them fit for your company but when you write it down i mean verbally is great if they understand in a you're telling me you always expect me to do the right thing. And they're hearing that from the boss, from the owner, and from everybody else above them. That's going to pay a lot of dividends because then the reputation of that company is, hey, they always do the right thing. I always get, you know, if they mess up, they tell me. If, if they don't, it's great, you know. But if you get that ethics program and put it in writing, and then somebody has to sign that. When you sign something, you're giving your word. Right. That that is your word. You just wrote down that I'm going to do the right thing. I've agreed to do this. And then at the same time, the employee has that. Understanding that says I signed this and the, this is what the company's expectation of me is. And I, I think small companies, all of them should have ethics programs. I really do, because like I said, I think it's easier. But the way it can be disseminated to all the employees um, and, and it's an expectation. If you have a new employee, you go through a new employee orientation and you say, Hey, by the way, here's our expectations at this company. And I, I think that pays huge dividends for everyone, not just the employees and the employer, but more importantly, the customer, right? If the customer keeps getting what they want and they think it's a fair price, it's then it becomes a good value regardless of the price. And people pay for what they think is a good value. So it, it, I think it pays dividends for all companies, but particularly small companies.
0: You've mentioned that you've worked in oil field, and I believe, think you touched on working in aerospace, and I know that you're also working within the nuclear industry. Um, can you talk to me about uh, ethics in
1: the aerospace industry and some of your experiences? So what they would do is this this place that we that I worked at, we did mag particle, liquid penetrant, ultrasonics, radiography, and we we ran six days a week, um, 24 hours a day. We did a lot of work. I mean, we averaged 3,000 parts a day through our penetrant inspection line, 1,200 parts a day through mag particle. So these these smaller companies that were supplying to the OEMs, the the Boeings, the Cessnas, and, and McDonnell Douglas at the time um, would bring their parts in and Sometimes they would be shopping, right? So you could tell the part had been previously inspected, which means they probably got rejected <laughs> from the last vendor and they're shopping around trying to see if they can get somebody to accept. them. Uh, and you could find that out. I mean, you can see it quickly. Um, and there was times when the guy that was the production manager, we would reject stuff and he just absolutely couldn't stand it because the customer had told him how important it was to get this job. out. Well, you're talking about aerospace components. Um, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I fly all the time. We all do. I, I mean, I was on an airplane Monday, <laughs> uh, you know, so you just, those are not things that you do, right? So when you see people and they would do that, but it's called shopping their parts, who could they find that would accept them? You know, and they were hoping they'd find somebody that could. And if they could get it from our company, it'd be great because we had an excellent reputation. So if they could run them through, but I had a really great group of inspectors that were taught to do the right thing, you know, always do the right thing. And, you know, when if they would reject the parts, the customer would always want to go talk to the inspector who rejected them. I need to find out what happened. I, I never allowed that. Uh, your job as a level three is to make sure that your inspectors are unintimidated at all times and are free to do their job the way they're supposed to without any type of harassment. Be it, I wouldn't let the production manager go talk to them. I dang sure wasn't going to let the customer do it because they would, you know, they'd try to influence them. And your job as a level three is to give that level one and level two inspector the freedom and confidence to know they they need to do the right thing and they're going to be protected they are, if they do the right thing. They also need to know ramifications of choosing the opposite as well. And again, those expectations are up to the level three to set. You have to set those expectations. Uh, If not, it's unfair. It's not fair to the inspector.
0: Would you say that it's common to shop around the parts? And do you think that they eventually find someone that's willing to compromise.
1: Again, that was in the oh, 97 to about two thousand and one time frame. So I've been out of the aerospace since that time. So I I, I can't speak to that now. Um, but back then, it didn't happen a lot, but it did happen. You know, it it absolutely did happen. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, once is too often right i mean because again it, they're aerospace parts I mean, right. you know it's it's again it's it's not hardware for your faucet or your plumbing system that the worst thing that happens is oh i get a you know a, a leak right. a, a water leak at my house you know um it's a lot more critical than that so i can't say that still is but i know that it did because i had witnessed it unfortunately far too many times.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor, WayGate Technologies. Warning, using robots to inspect boilers will result in increased safety, data, and efficiency. WayGate Technologies Boiler Robotic Inspection and Cleaning Service is transforming boiler maintenance with robots. Waygate Technologies isn't just making boiler inspection safer and faster by keeping humans out of boilers. They're delivering 95% more data, reducing turnaround time by up to 70% and reducing downtime too. Visit weygate-tech.com B-R-I-C to learn more or schedule a demo. And now back to the
1: podcast. Well I used to give liquid penetrant training classes, particularly in the aerospace, but in, in now in the nuclear field, it, it's it's still as, as prevalent, you know. Something as simple as liquid penetrant inspection on, on a component, if if you do, if you don't do your job right, it's gonna have ramifications. Um, perfect example, United Flight 232, all right. Um when was that? 89, I think. 1989. So, that flight was a DC-10, so it has three engines. Well, the number two engine, the, the, the fan rotor blew apart. Took out all three hydraulic systems. Primary, secondary, and tertiary. A terrible crash, alright. Um, there was 280 something people on the plane. 112 of them died. Uh, still considered quite a remarkable landing considering they had no controls right they didn't have any control of the plane and the pilot was able to land it and all but i mean 112 people died but that was a shame but the ntsb when they did their when they did their uh inspection you know their investigation they found remnants of fluorescent liquid penetrant in on the rotor in where they knew the primary failure happened so they knew fluorescent liquid penetrant inspection happened. So what they assumed was, okay, it was just a, a bad inspection. The guy missed it and poor quality control procedures. But actually, a while later, an internal investigation of United Airlines uh, maintenance facility found the inspector actually had found that indication he found it and he documented it he takes it to the material control area like he's supposed to do his procedures tell him to do well the material control people were busy shift change happens and all of a sudden that rotor assembly gets reinstalled in that engine and a year later the, the crash happens so that that was one guy who did his job, but he didn't follow it all the way through. The procedure said, make sure it gets turned in to the material control and they mark it appropriately. And, you know, then engineers will look at it and decide, oh yeah, we can fix it, we're going to scrap it, we're going to do whatever, but that's for the engineer to decide, not the inspector. He has an acceptance criteria. He found it. He did what he was supposed to do, but he didn't follow the process all the way through. 112 people died. I mean, it's something that, What we think is that innocuous, it's not. You have to do the right thing or there are ramifications and people have to understand that.
0: You told me a story about the Russian submarine welds.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And you talk about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So uh, 15 years ago, I was in Seattle. Okay. And if you've ever been to Seattle, down at the marketplace. I had a, a I had a day to kill. I was up there doing an audit uh, on an NDT supplier. Had a day to kill, so I go down to the waterfront and I'm walking around, and there's a there's an old Russian submarine there, and you can tour it, right? It, you know, you pay your five dollars or whatever. So I did, and I went through that submarine, and I was just fascinated that I've never seen such poor workmanship and welding. And such poor I mean the machining was terrible, chatter marks everywhere. And to think that these this sub had 70-80 people in it, and I guess it was in service for decades and decades. You know, it was a nineteen fifty circa submarine. And to think that it had been in service with those welds and that kind of workmanship for years just shocked me I just couldn't believe it it was beyond me but it, it's, it's what I tell all my inspectors and all the people that are trained ugly is not an acceptance criteria right I mean it could be an ugly weld and there was lots of them but it didn't fail which absolutely shocked me it was pretty pretty enlightening to me to, to see that I was kind of shocked quite frankly thinking wow I would never get on that. And, and to this day, anybody that's worked in NDT, when you get on a plane, right, the, the door, when they have the door open, there's four latches on the inside. I've inspected, I've magnetically magnetic inspected so many of those latches, it's ridiculous. I still find myself to this day looking at it when I get on the plane and go, yeah, it looks pretty good. Because, hey, it keeps the door closed. <laughs>
0: Should I be looking at that the next time I get on a plane? (laughs) I have no experience, but is there something that jumps out at, that should jump out at me?
1: Um, Yeah. Where they bolt in, where they bolt in, look for cracks around the bolts.
0: Okay. I'm about to get on a plane in two weeks. You're making me nervous. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about some stories, uh, pertaining to ethics in the nuclear industry. That's the industry that you currently work in, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So virtually all work in the nuclear industry, but particularly on my side, okay, that, that I do, is regulated by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, all right, the NRC. They have very specific requirements of what can and can't be done, how it's going to be done, and even when it's going to be done. So that's pretty regimented in that area. But what I have found the biggest issue is, again, people trying to interpret acceptance criteria, right? Because when you're making, with my group, we make type B packages. We design, license, and operate uh, nuclear material transport packages for the Department of Energy. Uh So I found that most of the people doing that, they're very, very good. The technicians and the people doing the work are very good, but they do what they're told, right? So if their management isn't understanding of actually what those requirements are, that's that's what's difficult. And for me, one of my areas of expertise is uh, leak testing. Well, every type B package that's NRC licensed anyway requires a pre-shipment leakage rate test. So you've, you've loaded the contents, you've put it on, on the truck, now you do a pre-shipment leakage rate test to make sure that it is properly assembled. The issue that I have found most of the time is the training of the personnel are not adequate. Um, and there have been instances where we found they accepted a test that they shouldn't have. Uh, Records review shows, I mean, actually, in one case, they didn't even backfill with helium. They used nitrogen. (laughs) Well, you will pass a helium leak test if your tracer gas is nitrogen. Trust me, you will. But you typically find it in the record side of it or doing direct observations. And then you reach out to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and file what's called a 10 CFR 7195 reportable. Uh, It's public record that you're telling everybody, okay, we, we didn't follow the rules of our... The requirements of our certificate of compliance and you barely here's so how I'm going to preclude recurrence as much as possible. But, yeah, I mean, it happens in the nuclear world. Like I said, it's so regimented. So many sets of eyes are looking at the documentation or I mean, I spend a lot of my time. I get on an airplane and I fly to a fabricator. And I'm gonna witness that X-ray, I'm gonna witness that ultrasonic examination. I stand there to make sure, or I send one another qualified individual to make sure it happens, acts exactly the way it's supposed to. And there's a lot of times we go, no, guys, that, that's not it, you know. Um, so it it's not as prevalent in the nuclear world, but it's still there. And because of the the ramifications, if it isn't done correctly. That I mean, that's where you start setting your an engineer when they set their acceptance criteria. They can't just go, "Oh yeah, I'm going to pick ASME code and it's going to be this." No, they have to look at what can I live with as a failure, right? What what is it that's going to happen if this is a fail? If something fails, if this component fails, so they actually do an analysis of that first to say what what can I accept? Because obviously the ramifications, if it's a category A part, a containment part, you, you, you I mean, that's not something you can accept at any time. <laughs> a failure in the containment components means exposure to the public because these are going down the public highway. So we have to, I mean, like I said, it's very regimented. It's not like in some of the other industries. Again, the aerospace, and I, I will tell you the aerospace has very high standards and Quite frankly, so does the oil field now, too. Uh, the automotive industry, everything is so automated. I mean, it's it's just quite astounding to me how automated they've made the automotive field in the area of non-destructive testing. They do amazing things there.
0: We talked about the role of upper management and the role of modeling ethical behavior. Is there a way to right the ship? And, and I guess what would be your opinion about... Educating a company, or, or I, I don't know, bringing someone in to educate your company about proper ethics, uh, so you don't falter or go down a negative path.
1: So a couple of years ago, I took a senior management training class. Um, all, all the senior managers at our company had to take this. It was a four week, four week class, All right. One of the areas of study that we did was on ethics, and is actually a book called <laughs> "Turn the Ship Around." All right. That was the name of the book. And it was about it was from a retired naval officer who had taken command of a ship that was in terrible condition. And and when I say terrible condition, it was the, the personnel. Right. So the way they started fixing it is he would push the authority and, the you know, you you can push authority down. You can't push responsibility. If you're the boss, you're still responsible. But he started pushing the authority down the command chain and making sure that everybody on the floor understood this is your responsibility. You've got to do it. I'm holding you accountable. So make that happen. And I think that's what companies have to do and people have to do. They have to say to themselves every day, I'm going to go do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing. And if companies adapt that philosophy, they will be successful. It's the companies that don't adapt that philosophy that fail or, or, or get bought out. You know, quite frankly, that's what happens to most of those companies that, that don't adopt that philosophy. Their, their, their business starts failing and they just get bought out by somebody else. Um, but yeah, it's very important that they push it down to the floor. The people doing their job have to be told and understand You have the authority to do this, and it is your responsibility, and I'm going to hold you accountable. And if you do that, people will. They will want to do the right thing. I believe inherently people want to do the right thing. They just have to know what it is. And as as management and supervisors, you have to do that. You have to tell them the expectations and tell them this is what our expectation is of you. And people will do it because they want to do the right thing. Two things that I've noticed. I think it's harder. People have to work at being rude and mean. Right? You got to work at that. I mean, to me, it's easier to, to just be nice. But it's the same thing as as doing the right thing. That's that's the easy thing to do. It's it causes too much stress and concern if you know you did the wrong thing. Now, if a mistake is a mistake, and that's okay. We're all human, and we make it you learn from that, right? That's a learning experience. You learn from that and you say, okay, not ever going to make that mistake again. That's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But going out there every day, doing the right thing, knowing this is the expectation of me and doing that is so much easier than doing the wrong thing. Cause that, that causes stress. Uh, you know, you, you can't go home and look at yourself in the mirror and go, oh, Gosh, I feel so much better about myself. You can't. You know, it's it causes a lot of self-confliction, and uh, I I don't I don't want to do that. I, it's just easier to do the right thing than it is to do the wrong thing because you have to worry about doing the wrong thing, you know, getting caught. Who's going to find out? Will I get fired? Even if I don't get fired, is there is there criminal and civil penalties associated with that? Right? You know, that comes into play as well.
0: Well, I want to thank you for speaking with me. Is there anything, any last words of advice for uh, Level 1s, Level 2s, even seasoned NDT professionals?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Understand your requirements. Don't assume that you know the requirement. Find out what the requirement is. Understand those requirements. Find out your acceptance criteria, understand those things. And as long as you do, you're able to completely do your job free of any stress, concern. But people will go out and do a, go do an inspection and they don't have the procedure with them. Well, I don't care if you've done it 500 times, 5,000 times. Take your procedure. Know your requirements. <laughs> you know, make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then everything will be fine, you know. And like I said, your word, it means everything in non-destructive testing. It, if you have a bad reputation, you will not be successful in this field. You, you know, go find another job. It's, this field is not for you. If you can't do the right thing, this is just isn't the field of, uh, of employment for you.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with you more, especially since I'm going to be getting on a plane.
1: <laughs> there you go, <laughs> just remember the same thing with your vehicle too, right?
0: I know, right, yeah, 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 and I mean NDT is everywhere, it
1: impacts us everywhere we go. Absolutely, you know, it goes from as simple a thing as a light bulbs, of soft drink containers, right, they, they get non-destructive testing on them. okay, so that, that little pull tab on the top, that actually gets a helium leak test, now you think that's a little ridiculous, Okay, but what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, you, you get a soft drink that's flat. Okay, no harm, no foul. But if that happens enough time, you're going to quit buying that brand, aren't you? <laughs> so there's always ramifications. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to Chat NDT with ASNT. For more information about our organization, please visit our website at asnt.org. You can also connect with us on social media at ASNT Info on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Chat NDT with ASNT is copyrighted by the American Society for Non-Destructive Testing. ASNT, Creating a
1: Safer World.